Hi, everyone. I'm Patricia Duff, and welcome to The Common Good. This past week, the Supreme Court, as you know, reversed Roe v. Wade and legal abortion with uh, certain constraints, throwing the rulemaking back to the states. As a result, we've been rocked, and millions are devastated by a decision that affects the most intimate and personal decisions women can make in their lifetime. More than a dozen states have already outlawed abortion and almost half of the U.S. is likely to ban or severely restrict the procedure. The consequences are enormous and complicated. And our distinguished panel will discuss the ramifications of overturning this half century old ruling. Before we get to this critically important discussion, I'd like to welcome our members of the Common Good today um, and acknowledge a few VIPs and familiar faces, the Honorable Gillian Sorensen, Women's Health Advocate and Attorney Sybil Shanewald, I really want to thank Leonora Blitz, who took um, around with the ball and helped organize uh, this event today. So thank you, Leonore. Um, and thank you all from Federal Hall, uh, who is partnering with us today. Um, it, Federal Hall, if you don't know, it is right downtown in New York on Wall Street, where our first president was inaugurated and our Bill of Rights was passed by our first Congress. At The Common Good, we work to offer informative discussions on the critical issues of the day with the highest caliber thought leaders and experts. And tonight, that includes our tremendous speakers and our moderators. So please welcome, first, Brenda Feigen, feminist activist, film producer, and attorney who was one of the key figures of the feminist movement of the 1970s and 80s. She worked on the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment with Gloria Steinem and was co-founder of the Women's Action Alliance, which founded Ms. Magazine, Feigen also worked with Ruth Bader Ginsburg in co-directing the American Civil Liberties Union New, uh, Women's Rights Project. Brenda, great to see you. Just <laughs> like old times, but maybe not in a good way. Um, Dr. Wendy Chapkin is co-founder of Global Doctors for Choice and past chair of the Board of Directors of Physicians for Reproductive Choice and Health. She was a Fulbright New Century Scholar, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of the American Medical Women's Association and Director of the Bureau of Maternity Services and Family Planning in New York City's Department of Health. She's received numerous awards for advocacy in public health. I'm honored to have you, Doctor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Carol Sanger is the award-winning Barbara Ehrenstein, Black Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. Her most recent book is right on topic. It's called About Abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century, which addresses the regulation of abortion and maternal conduct, surrogacy, and the law's relation to culture. She's received many awards for her teaching and also for her commitment to mentoring female law students. We're grateful to have you here, Professor Sanger. Thank you. Rebecca Tong has been working on the front lines of women's health and reproductive health as co-director of Trust Women, an organization that opened clinics in Kansas and Oklahoma to provide abortion care in underserved communities, regardless of one's ability to pay. As you know, Oklahoma recently passed some of the most restrictive laws in the land for women's productive rights in Kansas City and uh, Missouri. A major health provider there has already stopped providing Plan B emergency contraception after the state banned abortion with no exceptions for rape or incest. So it's very important we have you here today, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us. And to lead the conversation, we are thrilled to welcome back Kimberly Atkins, store attorney and senior opinion columnist for the Boston Globe and the Emancipator, she has also served as Boston Herald's Washington Bureau Chief, guest host of C-SPAN's morning call-in show, Washington Journal, and Supreme Court reporter for Massachusetts Law Lawyers Weekly. Thank you so much for joining us, Kimberly. And I'm now passing the conversation over to you. Thank you so much, Patricia, for having me for this very important conversation. I want to get right into it by allowing each of our panelists uh, a minute or two to give their major takeaways at the impact uh, of the Dobbs ruling. I will begin with Wendy Chavkin. Roe was trailblazing as it stipulated that a woman had the private right to decide whether or not to have a child and that her health and safety were paramount at all stages of pregnancy. Although some are more sympathetic to her right to health than to autonomy, the demise of Roe makes clear that the two cannot be separated. A sizable proportion of pregnancies go awry, 
Roughly 15% end in spontaneous miscarriage. Another one to 2% are ectopic, meaning that the early embryo implants outside of the uterus soon outgrows the space, bursts the tube, causing serious internal bleeding. Another 1% end in miscarriages after the first trimester, which can sometimes take place over days, with ongoing risks of blood loss and infection. These losses usually require medical completion of the process underway. Last week, an American woman with a wanted pregnancy was vacationing in Malta and started to spontaneously abort at 16 weeks. Maltese authorities said medical intervention was prohibited because the fetus still had a heartbeat, although it was doomed. In Ireland, a decade ago, the doctors did not provide the necessary care to a woman in similar circumstances, even as she became infected and died. Lately, much concern has been expressed about disparities in our maternal mortality rate. Yet we have a recent history of criminalizing some women who experience spontaneous pregnancy loss, especially if they are poor, of color, or use drugs. We have yet to see how widespread such efforts become to blame while denying standard care. Doctors are obligated by fiduciary duty to put their patients' best interests first. They also often derive meaning from providing top quality care. Many states will now prevent them from doing so. Many will be allies as they defend medical integrity, as well as their patients' fundamental right to the highest attainable standard of health. Rebecca Tong, you wanna give us your top points? Being in two states that have different legality, um, we're seeing it all. And we didn't have to wait for this Supreme Court decision for things to be terrible in this region of the country. Uh, since the passage or since the implementation of Texas's SB8, um, our clinics have been more than 50% out of state patients. So people in this region have been traveling for a long time in order to access this care. Um, after this decision, um, you know, we already had a ban in place in Oklahoma. Um, we have further bans that will be implemented. We have a felony law going into place. So um, it will be a very long road before we can provide again in Oklahoma. We will need to do something to re-legalize abortion in Oklahoma. Uh, in Kansas, we have a state constitutional protection right now, and it is up for a vote on August 2nd. And so right now we are just talking to all of the voters possible to make sure that they understand the risks, uh, precisely what Dr. Chavkin was stating, that this will impact anybody who can carry a pregnancy. There are so many gray areas when it comes to uh, carrying a pregnancy to term, a healthy pregnancy to term. And unfortunately, our clinics are situated in a region where not only is it an abortion desert, it's a healthcare desert. Um, the maternal mortality crisis in this region is extreme and Right now, our Wichita clinic is, for too many people, the closest clinic in driving distance. And so those who are able, who have means, they will fly wherever they need to fly in order to access this care. But if they know that they can only physically drive to one clinic, they will call over and over and over again. Um, we cannot possibly fill the need in all of the states where it will remain legal. Um, there will be many people who will take matters into their own hands. So, um, you know, again, we didn't have to wait for Roe to fall for it to be terrible, but this will certainly make it much, much worse. And I know that the measuring of this maternal mortality crisis, this manufactured crisis, is going to take us decades to measure and understand. Carol Sanger, what's your major takeaway? I have a few major takeaways and I'll just list them and perhaps we can come back to them in discussion. Um, I think in general, 
in what we're now calling the post-Row era, but sometime we're going to have to accept that it's the Dobbs era. Um, um, life is going for, life for women of reproductive age and their relatives of all ages is going to be sadder, is going to be um, more pressured with regard to resolving their unwanted pregnancy, which is already a, a very pressured, difficult for many um, moment. It's going to require, I think there's also going to be more women, woman shaming, because now if a woman, every, most people know that even under Roe, uh, talking about abortion is not a widespread activity, one's own abortion. There's great secrecy and a feeling of being shamed or stigmatized. And this will only be worse when having an abortion is now not the exercise of a constitutional right, but just another crime done by just another criminal. Um, I wanted to just say something about what Rebecca said about women will take things in their own hands. I think one of the things that will differentiate the U.S. in this period of illegal abortion, as opposed to that of the 50s and 60s, is that we have better technology and there's the medical abortion pill. And I hope we'll talk some more about that, but I think that will keep this from being as bloody a mess as it as it might otherwise be. And uh, it, yes, I have a particular um, worry about minors um, where all women are in, 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 in trouble now, but minors particularly, and those in the states that had judicial bypass hearings, there's going to be a lot of unresolved um, uh, figuring out what, what to do about them. Um, the other, point is, I think that in law, they're going to, a legacy of this case is going to be increased confusion, years of litigation on the various points, mostly concerning interterritorial uh, laws where women are banned from going from an illegal state to a legal state, uh, but only with the threat of being punished once they return home. So I think those are the, uh, oh yeah, I had one more I'm actually very worried about teaching law. Now I know that's not a worry to most people and we can all, you know, I know there are a lot of lawyer jokes and so on, but I do think it's a new challenge to teach law after a case like Dobbs, which is contradictory, um, misstates the history and um, discredits the Supreme Court, which hardly needed this last blow. So thank you. That's an important point. I was thinking about that myself as uh, someone with a law degree, how different the state of the law is at this time. Brenda Feigen. I'll pick it up right there and say that, uh, as, as you're both saying, the court has really lost the respect of people in general, young women in very much particular. Uh, why should we respect this court that has decided that our rights should be the same as they were back in 1868? in the 1800s when people were, uh, women were chattel. The Blackstone's famous saying that when a man and a woman get married, the husband is the man and is the one. And women just didn't have any rights. Couldn't, we couldn't vote. None, no women, of course, were drafting the constitution. We've had no say in any of this. So I think we have to be very clear about that. And, and also be aware that, the, that it's really a, ra I, I, I'm sorry, I have to say it this way, a radical Catholic Christian cult has taken over the court. These people are not neutral. They're not moderates. They have been appointed largely by Trump who has no principles whatsoever, that goes without saying. And I think it's uh, obvious to us that the Republican party has controlled this and that it's the result of our letting Trump get elected. And now here we are. Um, I just wanna say that the, um, majority opinion did not utter the words women really at any level in this in this, this decision of its. It talked about little tiny fingers and toes, but nothing about women and what kind of suffering they will go through if they are forced, and they will be, to carry pregnancies to term. It's not easy being pregnant. When I was pregnant a long time ago, I was, it was a fairly simple pregnancy. The birth was an emergency C-section, which was terrible, but it's a big deal to go through a pregnancy and have a baby and be forced to have that child. And I, I don't think that the majority cares. I mean, Amy Coney Barrett has actually been quoted as saying, 
that if you have a baby that you don't that you didn't want, just leave it at the hospital. Uh, I mean, that is heartless, cruel, and outrageous. And she is somebody with seven children um, who can obviously apparently afford the seven children. Most people cannot. So I think we really have to look at what we're dealing with here. And I, I just want to say that when I started the Women's Rights Project with, with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg back in 1972, uh, by 73, we were concerned about abortion, but Roe was not our case. I myself had a very important case that came up from North Carolina. A young black, poor black woman came into my office and said, can you tell me what these words mean on a little piece of paper? And the words were bilateral tubal ligation. She had been sterilized, sterilized against her knowledge and will. Her mother, the social workers had gone to the mother's house. There were eight children in the family. Mother was illiterate, couldn't read or write and put an X on a line so she wouldn't be thrown off welfare with her children. That is the flip side. And, our, and what, what I did was spin off a, a, what we call the Reproductive Freedom Project from the Women's Rights Project because it was every bit as important. And here we are. You know, it's it's just I, I could go on, and I don't want to. I just want to say that um, I am I am in a rage, and I am very sad by saddened by this decision. These, yeah. So I want to start at a point that you made, Brenda. I, I want to sort of take a look at exactly what this means for women and childbearing people. Um, it it goes beyond this idea of just saving life. It can in many instances put lives in danger, then I wanna talk about where we are uh, in the nation, where it, uh, access exists and where it doesn't, what that means, uh, and then move on to, to say what this means for the future. So I wanna start at this point, uh, Rebecca, one thing that I find uh, very frustrating is that it seems when you talk to people about this ruling, the idea in a lot of Americans' minds is that this has to do with irresponsible people getting pregnant uh, because they're not you know, having sex out of wedlock, young people, and it affects people so far beyond that. It affects people as, as everyone has pointed out, uh, just about people who have pregnancies that they want, uh, pregnancies that they planned. It affects married people, it affects um, childbearing people of all ages. Can you talk a little bit about what the impact is uh, and who this is affecting? Yeah. Um, the national statistic is, you know, six in 10 people who get abortions are already parents. Again, in this region where people tend to have children younger and tend to have more children, um, more like seven in 10 in our, of our patients are already parents. And the number one reason that they tell us every single time, why did you come here for an abortion, right? We're just checking that it is truly their decision. Number one reason, I would like to be a good mom. I wanna be a good parent. I wanna be prepared to be a parent when I'm ready or I already have children and I wanna take care of them. And I don't have the financial means for that right now. So this is overwhelmingly a parenting decision. There are so many moral justifiable reasons for why people seek this care. And uh, just like everyone stated, right? Pregnancy is incredibly dangerous. There are so many complicated factors that come into play. And um, I will use Oklahoma because it is a very easy example. There are 19,000 women to every one OBGYN in the state. So even if someone wanted to carry their pregnancy to term, where are they supposed to go? Whom are they supposed to see? Um, increasingly at our clinic, again, because it is just a funnel of complex medical obstetrics care, we are dealing with very complex pregnancies now. Um, people are being forced to wait. They're being delayed by weeks and it's leading to higher complications. Um, more instances of uh, you know, placenta accreta, of things that even if they, again, carried their pregnancies to term, they would have to give birth in a hospital, in an OR unit, because they are very likely to hemorrhage. Um, this is just, again, really poor healthcare, low access, and they're all being funneled in one direction now. Can I just say one thing on speaking. that point? I just want to say one thing, if I may, and that is that it's absolutely clear that the states that have the most restrictive abortion laws are also the states that have the least helpful and comprehensive maternal health laws. 
that offer the least support to mothers to be. So it's it's a mess, and it's exactly what you've just been saying. Yeah, higher maternal mortality, higher infant mortality, and really high incarceration as well. So they all mm-hmm. stack up. And it affects uh, women of color three to four times these uh, life-threatening complications uh, that we're talking about. Um, Wendy Chav, can can you talk a little bit more about that and talk about what it means beyond pregnancy uh, um, in, with some of these laws, things like um, certain forms of contraception, like IUDs could be implemented, things like uh, assistive, uh, assisted reproductive technologies, like IVF could be implemented. How, how far is the impact of, of these laws? It, you know, it's a free fall. I mean, it's, it's, we'll see how crazy people want to be and how mean. Um, and some of them are going to want to be crazy and mean. But I think, you know, from my vantage point, since I'm here to be the medical voice, it is useful to be precise and loud about what medical definitions are. The people who say an IUD is, you know, an abortifacient are making it up. You know, they're just, they're, they're just imposing their personal worldview on something that nobody else, I mean, nobody with technical knowledge agrees with. So I think it's important that we um, try to insist on the scientific and medical realities. But as we all know, having just lived through the pandemic, as well as through climate change, there are a lot of people in this country who do not respect science or technical knowledge either. So I think, it's, it's really tough. So to answer your question more precisely, I think it's going to play out in a widely varied way. And I think for sure there are going to be some prosecutors or some politicians who choose to try to go after the most extreme cases. And um, when they go after the IVF, and the reason IVF is an issue is because usually several embryos are created and it is best medical practice, safest for the pregnant woman and the future child to only implant one of them. So then you've got a couple of extra ones around. So whoever is going to decide to say that it's an abortion to, you know, not use those things, uh, those extra embryos, is actually going to be tackling a privileged and entitled segment of the population. The people who get IVF want what they want, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that they haven't had their own stories of hardship and sorrow, but they are pursuing what they want and they're used to getting what they want. So it will be interesting to see um, how some of this plays out, but going back to, I don't know if it was Carol or Brenda who said, we're in for a lot of messy fighting on local levels. Um, And that means a lot of sorrow and hardship for individuals. Yeah, and Carol, Talk a little bit about what some of these laws, what these laws will create in terms of the landscape throughout the United States. Roughly half of the country will be covered uh, by some laws that uh, restrict or greatly eliminate access to abortion care, while some uh, states uh, protect them. You have a this, I guess, this difference right now from a place like Massachusetts, which has. Um, a, a protection for abortion access as well as a commitment to uh, protect people from being prosecuted in other states where it's criminalized all the way to places like Missouri, uh, which has already eliminated it or, or places like Texas that will have, um, that do have uh, laws that allow people to bounty hunt essentially, uh, those who right. have abortion care. What, what does the landscape across the country um, not to mention that some of these laws do not have exceptions for things like rape or incest or the life and health of the mother. Right. Uh, just on that last point, someone asked me, "How could is this? If you're if you have a, a rape, uh, is there no 
recourse for you? And I said, well, in some states there is, you have to report it to the police first before you can apply for this, for an exception. So everything is bootstrapped to something as bad. We know women don't report rapes all the time for reasonable reasons. And so even where it sounds like there's a, a an opening or a point of uh, thoughtfulness, it, it, the case is that it's not. I haven't looked at my map of the United States. I feel like a second grader these days because I'm watching the colors change. Um, and the states have become are becoming, they're sort of a contiguous uh, line going up the, up the center of the United States. And the distance was that women from Texas were going to Oklahoma. Then Oklahoma shut down. So then they were going to Kansas. And now, so there's this continuing push uh, out. And, and again, this again shows the difference that wealth is going to make um, and, and the importance of supplementing um, the costs of transportation uh, 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 hotels and so on, as some businesses are have announced they're doing. And I think that's a very interesting and early intervention by by the market um, to to say we're, we're stepping in here. Uh, and I thought that was, you know, a number of the really big companies are doing it. They can probably afford it. But I wanted to ask Rebecca, if your clinic closed, what's the nearest clinic your patients could go to? Um, ours is the closest clinic for at least 200 miles, uh, depending on what happens in Iowa, uh, but maybe probably Colorado. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, the we're closer to the populated portions of Texas. And so rather than going to New Mexico or Las Vegas, uh, right. they tend to go this direction. So instead. we know. Yeah, so we know from the Hellerstadt case in 2016, where there was extensive research done on how far women would have to travel just within Texas. And 350 miles was um, from the Rio Grande to, to, to one of the um, more available clinics. So, we're, and we're talking about having a car. You know, we're talking about bus schedules. It's a really, there's going to be something like reproductive travel agencies, and I, I don't mean it in a light way at all, where you have to, the logistics will be very difficult, and you have to know the law of each state as well. So it's going to require um, a lot of calculations to get a woman in a timely fashion to a place where she can receive um, her health care. And Carol, as a follow-up to that, some of these states are attempting to outlaw traveling outside yes, of the state yes. in order to uh, obtain abortion access. Is that constitutional? That's not clear. Brett Kavanaugh says it is not constitutional, but I'm not going to him for legal advice at this stage. And um, we just had a big session in our in our law school to talk about that and everybody was mixed. And so this is going to be years of litigation as to whether on, on the out-of-state travel, uh, and we have to remind everybody that you know, the right to travel isn't in the Constitution either, which, which sometimes matters and sometimes doesn't matter. Um, so, and also the question of mailing pills uh, and receiving receiving um, devices and such in the mail has also going to be, right now the FDA has approved that, um, but how long that will last is, is also unclear. So this is an area of great concern because there are no clear answers. And so people are betting their healthcare and they're betting their uh, professional careers on whether something is uh, uh, constitutional or not. It reminds me, there's a book from the, uh, Brenda might know from the 70s called Doctors of, oh, Wendy will know, Doctors of Conscience, which was about doctors who were ordinary gynecologists and OBs who performed abortions for women when it was illegal. And, and Carol Jaffe, my pal. Oh, yes, okay. by Carol Jaffe. Okay, so, uh, we're going to we're going to be. I used to think you could count on the courts to do the right thing and step up. I certainly no longer think that at these high levels and think yeah. that a burden, a great burden, will fall on doctors. 
And so, Brenda, I want to ask you, I mean, given the fact that recent polling shows the vast majority uh, of Americans, 64 percent, supported keeping Roe v. Wade uh, as the law of the land. So this decision goes, the court doesn't have to listen to a public opinion, but it's telling when a court ruling goes so far against it. As I mentioned before, it's not clear that Americans fully understand the impact of this decision what do you think will it take? Will it take the types of horror stories that Rebecca was talking about, about the the impact on the lives and health of women and childbearing people before the American people really understand the urgency, the, 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 the major tide that has changed from this ruling? Well, I, I just want to say, I think this is partly responsive that uh, I was listening to uh, somebody talking today and there is concern that when when people start ordering abortifacients by mail or checking out where they can go on the internet, that there may be, I, I hate to say, but spying going on on that with retribution for having um, sought information or sought help. So that's a, the whole area of privacy, which has been completely screwed up by this court uh, and liberty, of course is uh, something of great concern to me. And I think we, we are basically seeing a time when people like me, and I think Carol is saying the same thing, uh, have basically lost respect for the court uh, to such an extent that I am seriously advising people not to bring cases. If you, if you lose a case at the federal circuit court level, I'm just saying, don't go to the Supreme Court. Don't appeal. You're not going to win. I mean, unless it's something completely unrelated to, to liberty and privacy and even, even protection. I worry about that. I mean, with with Thomas's unbelievable warning that contraception and uh, same sex marriage and same sex sex may be off the table. And I add to that interracial marriage. If he doesn't want to see that, it's too damn bad. Um, I don't necessarily see this court going that far, but it certainly is a problem and it's very scary. And I'm worried about appeals and I'm worried about going to the, I, I just, I have no respect. And I, I mean, Olivia, Olivia Rodrigo in her concert had a, was saying, you know, basically fuck this, I hate the court. I wish I could sing it for you, but I mean, it's, it's just um, pathetic. And I feel sort of bad that I have spent so much of my career respecting constitutional law. Um, <laughs> Ruth would be rolling in her grave, probably is rolling in her grave right now over this. I can't, I, I, it's just hard to believe it. And um, with Ginny Thomas and her, the conflict she brings to her husband and the court is in the uh, midst of it all, I, I am just flabbergasted. I feel like I should study something else beside the constitution. I keep saying. Yeah, um, you know, Wendy, uh, yes. I was just going to say, um, to Brenda's point, the courts may not want to get into it, but the legislators are going to be jumping Absolutely. into it. They're going to be just thrilled to uh, pass. Mm-hmm. And they've announced it already, uh, chip away at the other rights that are derived from privacy. Yes, um, yes, I I think that that is true too. Wendy, I want to ask you uh, on the point, um, since you are the co-founder of the Global Doctors for Choice, what do you think this means in a global context? I mean, I could see messages uh, on Twitter and elsewhere from leaders of other countries who expressed horror uh, at what was happening as if a national a natural disaster had hit the United States. What does this mean in a global context? And I've gotten condolence notes from around the world. Um, it means a lot. I mean, the global gag rule has already reached enormous damage in parts of the world where services related to reproductive health care heavily relied on funding from the United States, from countries that are very poor and really, really relied on funding. So we have already caused, caused a lot of damage. And the United States at this point is the hegemonic power in the world. So, um, it means a tremendous amount. On the other hand, I have got to say that there are a bunch of countries that have been moving in really progressive directions Mm -hmm. on these issues, many of which are traditionally and by majority very Catholic. So that we've got several countries in Latin America that have recently legalized 
abortion. And indeed, some of those laws are remarkably broad and progressive in their vision. South Korea, um, you know, Ireland a few years ago. So um, there is positive change in the world, but it also means that the United States, not just the court is in disrespect, but the United States is held in disrespect. I mean, it just, we, this is one of many ways in which we um, really lose our moral standing. Um, and that has implications across the board for foreign policy. Yeah, I wanna remind all our uh, participants that I will reserve the last 15 minutes or so uh, for questions from the audience Preferably, if you could put those questions in the chat, um, you can also use the raise your hand feature. I will look at that, but uh, because we have so many participants, I may miss you that way. So uh, it would be better to put your question in the chat. I will try to get to as many questions that uh, the panel has not already answered uh, at the end um, of, of the program. I, I wanna go back to uh, another question when we're talking about what comes next. What, if people are concerned what, besides voting, or perhaps including voting, should they do in order to try to protect not just access to abortion care to those who need it, uh, but also try to change laws at the local and state level to give better protection to reproductive health care more broadly? I, I will start with you, Brenda. Well, the first, I just want to say that I think this is sort of responsive, is that I think we should boycott the states that have uh, these laws that are so restrictive that basically don't work, which means things like the entertainment industry shouldn't be having concerts in those states. Sports should be limited. I mean, it's just that we should not be um, solicitous of the legislators in those states that have made these laws. So it we and and of course we have to go and vote, but we also have to lobby very very hard in Washington for a federal law that I I don't quite want to say codifies role because there are issues that I'd like to skirt around in new federal legislation, uh, namely the, the issue. Uh, I, I'd rather not have the specific details of some of the legislating in role, but I would like the concept of equal protection so that if men have complete autonomy over their bodies, women should have autonomy over our bodies to the same extent. And I, I, I can live with the 24 weeks in role, but the issue really is uh, a bodily autonomy and, uh, and women's consciousness of that, so that we are aware of, of, of what our rights are and how different we are in terms of how many rights we have compared to when these uh, principles of women being property of men and chattel were in existence in the 1800s. Yeah, Carol, talk a little bit more about the equal protection right. First of all, explain to people why Roe was not considered under an equal protection analysis in the first place and can using that uh, in these challenges that go uh, to this issue and beyond, uh, is that something that we'll see? Not for a while. Roe um, Ro was decided on the basis of privacy, which has slipped into the broader concept of liberty in the, uh, in the in subsequent cases, including Casey. But the reason, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was for using equal protection, sex discrimination is what we're talking about, um, at, to, to achieve the, the abortion right. It wasn't used because it was 19, the early 1970s, and it wasn't completely established. And I, I hope I hope Brenda thinks that that's right. I mean, it wasn't a fulsome doc, uh, doctrine that you could pick up and, and run with. And so an abortion being as uh, touchy a subject as it was, it just wasn't um, it just wasn't wasn't used and wouldn't have been accepted anyway. So but. Now, I think that the point is right, that any any codification of the abortion right should also be based in this broader concept. And you, you ask what, how does it work, the equal protection in this case? And the idea is very simple. It's that women have children and have to give, women become mothers and have to, because of their social role, give up their life. They 
that's that's a, that's a fact that most of us are familiar with. Even if some of us have succeeded with, well, I don't know if we've succeeded with motherhood, but you know, and and professionally, men become fathers, and usually, I, I'm sorry to the men who are in the audience, but give give up much less, much for a much shorter time. Um, it, it's not their burden. Mothers are the ones who take care of children, and it's it's like a. Uh, so, so that, so that that's what we're talking about. Different consequences for the same action on the two sexes, and it plays out very, very differently. And the court acknowledged this in the Casey case. It, it absolutely acknowledged that women had the greater burden of this. Yeah, R- Rebecca. One thing that um, the physicians uh, uh, and advocates have said to me is a fear that uh, even if protections are ultimately implemented enough to uh, preserve abortion access, that by the time that happens, so many fewer doctors or medical students or others who participate in uh, OBGYN care will go into that field or learn how to perform these life-saving procedures. that, it, that includes abortions and other procedures, that it still will be a lack of access to physician care just because there won't be physicians to perform this. Is this something that is a reasonable fear? Absolutely, and already a problem in the Midwest and South. So again, as soon as Texas's law went into effect, universities in Texas called up our clinic immediately asking whether their complex family medicine people could practice with us could learn these procedures because they need to know how to do these in order to save people's lives. Um, I did want to speak to the the legal point, though. Um, So in Kansas right now, we do have a state constitutional protection. Mm -hmm. The case was argued that this is a fundamental right, that Mm -hmm. people must be able to decide the course and direction of their life. And... um, so in practice, you know, in Kansas actually has a stronger protection than Colorado, than California right now. Um, it is a strict scrutiny protection for those of you who, who are legally minded. And so it's something that we are, we have to hold on to. Um, so I think for the future, we have to, and there's nothing that can happen at the federal level, right? The Biden-Harris administration, there are some things that they can do but there's not, they cannot just mandate that abortion automatically be re-legalized throughout the country. We don't want that from the executive branch, right? We don't want to give them that kind of power. There's nothing that can happen in our, in our uh, federal legislature. It is locked up. There is so much happening though at the state legislative level, at the state court level, and the states where this is going to be illegal, right? The 26 states that are certain or likely, or, and you know, the six that I already have, they need political investment. Um, I know, you know, many people don't even know where Kansas is, right? It is in the dead center of the country. And it is a red state, right? It is definitely conservative. Um, however, for this ballot measure that we're facing on August 2nd, it is a toss-up race. It is 46, 45, mm-hmm. 46 our side, people who wanna make sure that abortion remains legal mm-hmm. and 45 that think that it should go away. So yeah. it is winnable in these areas. It's gonna take a lot of effort, a lot of conversations, a lot of public education, mm-hmm. and a lot of just talking more about abortion. So that is the one thing that does make me hopeful, even with all of the terrible things, right? That Mm -hmm. nobody thinks about abortion until they need one. And right now you cannot escape talking about it, right? It is all over the news, all over people's social media feeds, um, all over the podcasts, right? So people are talking about it and the way that we talk about it is going to matter as a moral right, right? as a life-saving healthcare procedure. And that's the only way that we're gonna get something better than Roe. And we do need something better than Roe. 
And Wendy, I see that you had something to add. And right after that, I'll go to questions. Optimistic than Rebecca's experience with the doctors because now, granted, I'm sitting in New York City, and granted, I you know my experience includes parts of the country that are very blue. Um, But there are lots and lots of young doctors who have already been enrolling in um, all the advocacy and clinical training programs focused on family planning writ large and reproductive health care writ large, including abortion. So I understand full well the problem that you talked about, Rebecca, which is if you can't practice, if you can't do clinical practice, you can't learn something right there. But I do want people to know that there are a lot of up and coming physicians who are caring about this, showing up, getting trained. And so, you know, maybe that's a place to focus some energy. One question that I have uh, that's maybe for Carol is the question of why uh, there has not been a full frontal First Amendment challenge to abortion restrictions premised on the notion that some, but not all of the, re- uh, the religions, uh, is that life begins at conception. Um, can you answer that, Carol? I can partly answer it. Um, the First Amendment challenges have succeeded, but they're usually representing doctors who argue that their First Amendment rights to speak are uh, have been curtailed by, by uh, for example, uh, state legislation that gives the doctors a script that they have to read to the patient before the, the patient can consent. The First Amendment is a, um, the reason I'm stuttering over the First Amendment is in the last, it, 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 under this court, it's very unclear what the First Amendment, how the First Amendment will operate. And we've seen a deference to those people who claim First Amendment rights not to perform abortions. So it has its own complications. And we have a huge number of um, uh, waivers uh, by by doctors and nurses permitted in, in certain states. So the First Amendment from one perspective seems absolutely right. Um, from the from the establishment of religion, from um, but from the other is is more complicated, and and I I I don't think we're clear about what the court would do with that. Yeah. Um, Another question we have uh, is almost overnight, data and data privacy have become top of mind for organizers and abortion care providers. We live in a world where many, if not most people, will turn to the internet to find reproductive health care in states where it's legal. Searches of that sort may make people vulnerable. Uh, Rebecca, is that a concern that you are hearing? Yeah. People are calling, asking if it's legal, whether they can even tell us that they would need an abortion. Um, you know, there are already people in jail criminalized for their miscarriages, and they've used, you know, text messages between them and Planned Parenthood as legal evidence that they miscarried on purpose. So, um, you know, like we said at the beginning, right, they will go at these overzealous prosecutors will go after women who are not the good women in our society, and they will use these laws in order to criminalize them. And, um, you know, frankly, they don't even need abortion laws to do that. They will use whatever laws necessary, um, drug laws, uh, family laws, all sorts of things in order to put people in jail. Yeah. Brendan, Carol, can you talk a little bit more? Uh, or might there be uh, situations where women who have miscarriages or, or seeking other forms of care could be investigated to, to see if they are criminally liable? Well, yes, it's happening. And um, who are particularly um, alarmed are emergency room doctors. If a woman comes in, and maybe Wendy's more familiar with this, um, but they have they have felt in jeopardy about, it's a little bit like the Savita case that was mentioned earlier um, about whether they can provide services or what they'll be providing an abortion. I mean- well, But the, there shouldn't be any question about that. On a medical point of view, there should be no question. And so you're, you know, we have our work to do really clearly. If you take care of somebody who's having a miscarriage, it has nothing to do with abortion. It's a, it's a separate issue. So there are, I'm not dis- disputing that there are people who are nervous and worried, but 
that's what my earlier comment about, we have to be really mm -hmm. clear about what's what, and that they're just separate. But there have been prosecutions in I Texas, understand. for example. I understand so that, that we have to, but, but I mean, that's where you need organized medicine to show its muscle. Yes, yes. You need, I mean, this is just completely nonsensical. Well, I was thinking about how when in the in the period of reform before Roe was decided, the AMA came out in favor of reforming abortion law. And I don't know where they are right now. I mean, they've, been, they've said good things about this, but whether they're doing anything, they, they made a good statement. ACOG, okay. which is the OBGYN yeah, organization, yeah. has actually been consistently quite good on this. But the point is you know, really um, getting out there and doing, you know, lots of things that make it clear to clinicians yeah. that they have their back and what the technical justifications are. Yeah. Uh, another question is if, uh, I'm rephrasing it a little bit, but if things like IUDs and reproductive technologies uh, are in question, what about things like vasectomies? Will urologists also be on the defensive in the way OBGYNs are? That would be great. <laughs> can, I, can I throw something yes, in here? Brenda. I just want to, I just want to say that Chief Justice Roberts really lost me. First of all, he's the Chief Justice, mm -hmm. get one other judge to go along with him. Then he says, a ban on terminating a pregnancy from the moment of conception must be treated the same under the constitution as a ban after 15 weeks. What does that show you about the understanding of pregnancy or the understanding of what women go through? The moment of conception involves some of the IUD issues. It's just crazy. I just want to tell everybody, when, when I was working with Ruth, as I said earlier, the big deal was equal protection. We were really about equal protection and she cared a lot that Roe didn't go off on equal protection grounds. And I will say that I visited her from time to time while she was on the Supreme Court. And on one of her, on my later visits with her after Obergefell was being, as it was being decided, she said, I want you to know that Justice Kennedy, Tony Kennedy, put in a page on equal protection on the, in the Obergefell decision, which is the same-sex marriage decision. She, she did not want it to be about liberty or privacy. Her, the, the focus on equal protection has a lot to do with the jurisprudence in this country that has used equal protection. Just like I assume Thomas is thinking when it comes to loving the Virginia and how if interracial couples, interracial couples should have the same rights as the same, same race couples. So should same sex and opposite sex. It's very simple. And I think we have to simplify it because the judges are just not getting the nuance here at all. And they're just bludgeoning it with us, with, with their horrible decision. Uh, I want to get to some uh, other questions in the couple minutes we have left. One says, I live in Colorado, but came to Ohio. I see this morning's paper that some of the urban cities in Ohio are taking the position that they won't make enforcement of Ohio's heartbeat law a priority. How successful can this be uh, to anyone who wants to talk about that, Carol, or anyone about, can, can this be a matter of prosecutorial discretion or enforcement discretion? Oh, I think it'll be very difficult to find physicians or clinicians who are willing to practice under um, a promise from a prosecutor. Um, I think, you know, in addition to the legal challenges that physicians face in this region, it's also a politically and um, it's scary, right? Um, there, we fly in almost all of our physicians because they do not want to live in this region due to the history of violence, due to the domestic terrorism and due to the threats against their life. Um, it is isolating work and everyone will know your name and they will know exactly what you do. And um, so I, I think that's another factor that will prevent many physicians right? It's not something that we can force people into doing. Um, they really have to decide for themselves. And there is a lot of security that we provide, but right, you know, again, Dr. Tiller was shot in his church. So they will find a way to shoot you. Um, also, we should look at the San Francisco example of the prosecutor who said what he wouldn't prosecute and was, you know, kicked out at the next, uh, at the ne at the next election. 
But I wanted to say, I think that the idea of crime and that abortion is now a crime can't be made real and made real enough. Uh, someone called me up and said, will it take about one or two years to get abortion criminalized one, if, the, if, if Roe falls down? I said, no, it should take about five or six days because we already have a criminal justice system. We already have prosecutors. We have, we, we know what prosecution looks like. We know what investigation looks like. We have police. So the meat and bones pursuing a criminal action is something that we're very good at. And uh, it is something to be afraid of. Uh, and it, 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 it's, it, it's just such a huge difference between a medical procedure, as hard as it was to come by, which has now been converted to a crime, a dirty crime. Yeah. So and I want to ask, I just want to, we only have a couple minutes left and we've, I've seen a couple questions uh, on the issue of the uh, uh, unborn fetus in life. And I want to ask it in two ways. One, legally, what is the implication if there were, for example, personhood statutes that give personhood to uh, anybody after the point of contraception? What would that mean legally? But also I wanna ask what this means morally because we talked about this going against public opinion by and large. There's still 30% of people in the nation according to polling wanted Roe v. Wade overturned. And a lot of those people, not everybody who passed these laws but a lot of people who support them genuinely believe that these laws are meant to protect unborn life. Um, I want any of you and all of you to respond either and or, or both to the legal and moral issues uh, about this. Okay, well, I'll just, oh, Wendy, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just gonna say, and this is not really uh, profound or new, but it seems to me that if somebody feels that that is life that needs to be respected, that's fine. But the fact is that we, live in a society where people hold many different views. There have been several points raised in the chat about religious freedom. And the fact is I am a member of a religion that thinks that the woman comes first. So you have competing visions of these deeply held beliefs. And you know that's what the separation of church and state I thought was supposed to honor that we have to negotiate the fact that we live together and we think differently. And so if you feel that way, I have to deeply respect it, but you can't, you know, your conscience ends at the tip of my nose. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will, I will go to you next, Brenda. Go ahead, Carol. My greatest fear before um, the before we got the leak was that the case, the court would say not only is uh, uh, privacy not in the Constitution, but the, uh, one of the one of the egregious mistakes that the Roe Court made. But I thought they might go for saying the second big mistake that Roe Court made was that the fetus is not a person, because that would have accomplished criminal criminalizing abortion across the country and not state by state. But they took the democracy route instead, which is very good. But I don't doubt that we will see in the next five years, or well, we'll see how the elections go, but uh, efforts at the state level to have the um, uh, uh, fetus be declared a person. And a personhood amendment failed in Mississippi, I think seven years ago. And they couldn't, you know, they figured, gosh, that should be a slam dunk. How did it fail? And some research that's been done on it show that some of the arguments by the don't make, don't, don't amend your constitution this way was, have you thought about your fertility and your pro procreative plans for the future? And, you know, you might want a frozen embryo someday. You might not want to have, you, you might not want to give away and turn your, your uh, IVF into a, right. into a murder. I just, wanted, I just wanted to say that the whole thing is a balancing act. Uh, the, the balance between the fetus and the mother and I feel like we have, in, in all of this discussion, we've lost what women go through, I've said this before, go through during a pregnancy. And not only that, but where is the Catholic church in terms of supporting mothers and babies and young children? Where is the money going 
for foster care. I mean, it just is, it's implausible to me. And I know it's not just the Catholic church, but it really is a balancing act that we tried to achieve with Roe. That was theoretically a balance between the mother and the fetus. But I think the most, most important thing right now is this court does not balance the woman at all. It's all about the tiny little fingers and toes. And it's, it's just clear that we have to say loudly and clearly, we do not agree with you. You are not representing our moral or legal uh, positions. Yeah, Rebecca, the last word goes to you. I think most Americans are against a personhood amendment. It does, I mean, I think our country has shown us how truly worthless they think that women's lives are. From all of our focus groups and polling that we've done in this region, even right-wing Midwestern Republicans, right, don't want to be involved in complex medical decision-making for someone else. Maybe it's our rugged individualism, right? Um, so I think focusing on the person who needs the care is ultimately our, our only way to forward. All right, and actually the last word will go to Patricia Duff. Thank you so much for an incredible discussion about such an important topic. Uh, you all have been so helpful. We got a lot of uh, uh, talk on the chat wall. So appreciate all the input, but thank you, Kimberly, for uh, moderating this. Thank you, Carol, Rebecca, Wendy, Brenda. It's so um, honored to have you here. Um, please come back, everybody. We've also got an in-person event July 23rd in the Hamptons on uh, Navalny uh, with the director of the gripping documentary about what's happening with Navalny and how he was poisoned. In the fall, we become more active and we're going to be doing more on the economy, on inflation. In the meantime, we will uh, do things on Ukraine um, and uh, we'll continue this discussion. It's going to be ongoing for a long time, I, I think. Mm -hmm. But thank you so much. I hope we can have you back. Thank you.